And now, ladies and gentlemen, check it out. You've got to start somewhere. The podcast that takes you behind the scenes of show business to prove there's no such thing as an overnight success. With your host, Rachel Corbett. Welcome to the show. Today, I am chatting to journalist, TV host, and all-round delightful bloke, Hamish McDonald. Hello. Hello. What an intro. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I must reference the fact that in the background, we are at my apartment recording this. uh, And whenever I record here, I think it's because I tend to record at the same time of day. It's like a hubbub of activity outside. We've got the leaf blower next door. If you listen, we've got a plane going over just now. Perfectly timed. (laughs) And there are some dogs barking in the background. So you're just going to have to join us and let it go and just think, you know what? It's not all about the audio quality. It's all about the conversation. (laughs) It's really uh, setting some expectations there, but we'll do our (laughs) best to maintain interest. I like offering a big disclaimer at the beginning so people know what they're going to get. But it's a lovely day and, you know, people are doing things. Yeah. And if you hear the sort of background noise, you kind of feel like you're just sitting down with us having a cup of coffee, right? It doesn't feel like a show. such that's it it's real um are you uh are you a little nervous are you all right a little bit i'm picking my fingernails (laughs) (laughs) we have discussed this because i've been trying to get you on for a little while and you were a little uh hesitant well i listened to some of the podcasts and i think people have such incredible stories like i listened to georgie coglin's project And George is an incredibly gregarious and charismatic person and has also had a really varied life. Mm -hmm. And I listened to it on a flight one day and I thought, my God, I've got nothing on (laughs) George. You don't have any Shania Twain tribute shows in your back catalogue? I definitely (laughs) do not have that. And I listened to Amanda Keller who went to my university and Amanda is just such a sort of supreme storyteller and everything that comes out of her mouth is both poignant and hilarious yes and that was quite intimidating as well so i felt that i needed to give you a disclaimer that uh, i would be much less interesting (laughs) i do not believe it for a second if you haven't listened to the amanda keller episode yet please go back because there is a great story of her skydiving with a camel toe that is a must hear so i want to go right back to the beginning of things and ask you when you were little What did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a journalist. No. Well, I don't really remember it as such, but it's sort of one of those things that my parents have told me and my family has told me. I used to have tape recorders and I would go around doing like little interview shows and uh, making radio programs. And I have an older brother and sister, both of whom are quite a bit older. They're half siblings, although we never use that Mm. term. Uh, And they are both journalists as well. So I always, that was always in the ether somewhere. Yeah, I don't ever really remember wanting to be anything else. I love that because it's so rare that we actually become what we want when we're that little. And I love it when somebody has a sense of what they want to be from that young because then you don't have, or maybe correct me if I'm wrong, those interim years where you're just like, what the F am I doing with my life? Where do I want to go? What do I want to do? Like if you've got a sense, or did you still have that? Uh, No, I definitely always had that sense of, that's when, I don't know if it was necessarily that I was going to be a journalist, but I it was I was very engaged with the storytelling side of things. Mm. I, I guess that is my whatever memory I have of it. It's that I really enjoyed the talking to people and finding things out and then telling stories about those things. 
I think the what the hell am I going to do came a bit later for me in more recent years. That's definitely been a question. So I guess it comes at some point for everybody, but I think it was always somehow there. I was never necessarily going to go into broadcasting, but definitely journalism towards the end of high school and into university. That was, I knew that's what I was going to do. My older sister had gone to Bathurst to uni and everyone was going to Bathurst that wanted to be a journalist. Mm. So I, I knew that at some point during high school that that was what I was going to do. When you turned up there, did you just love it? Were you thinking this is this I am in the right spot? I mean, I had an amazing time. I definitely didn't think broadcasting was going to be my thing you know why did you think that oh because we had to you know you had to do sort of local you had to do the community radio station at the university and I think the first time I did I did a sound check and I was so bad upon hearing my voice for the first time I mean I'm a nervous laugher I've always been a nervous laugher and I just basically giggled my way through and reading a news bulletin and came out of the studio and the, and the lecturer said, well, you definitely don't have a future in this. And I changed to print journalism. Just off that one instance. Well, it was just, it wasn't really like I was determined to do yeah. broadcasting. And I was like, well, I'm obviously no good at that. And I really, really hated the sound of my own voice. Everybody does though. Everybody does. I've never met anybody that's heard their voice for the first time and thought, oh, I sound spectacular. Rachel, you and I have worked with plenty of people that love the well, sound actually, of their that's, own voices. That's true. <laughs> but that moment when you hear yourself back, because I had experience with that a lot working in radio when you do the dreaded air checks where your boss basically sits you down and you listen back to the show that you did and they tell you everything that was shit about it. Mm. Um, but I remember when I first started and I heard my laugh for the first time and it was honestly like a donkey having a (laughs) panic attack and it was because I had never really laughed in a way that it mattered how it sounded you know because in normal everyday life when you're having a conversation with somebody you can laugh however you laugh and I have actively over the 15 years or whatever had to change my laugh and now it's funny because when I've done shows in the past recently people have often the thing that they've often said about my style that they like is my laugh and I think oh my word if you could have heard it it was literally like (gasps) you know but you need to sort of learn those lessons early to kind of then adjust yeah I guess so there was a lot of lessons learned very early during those (laughs) days so did you think okay well print journalism's for me and did that stick with you for a long time not really because actually I kept doing some of the I think they had a kind of talking newspaper show on the Deb Knight was telling me this where you just read out the newspaper (laughs) yeah you read out the I think it was the central western daily and the western advocate (laughs) and um Oh God, it was terrible because you sort of, you also didn't know how to pronounce things. You didn't, I remember reading it one day and there was some kind of um, incident. There's a park in Bathurst called uh, Makati Park. And I read the whole article as being about this attack in Machete Park. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're just trying to French it up a bit or something. (laughs) Just trying to make it sound more ominous. Anyway, so I did that and then uh, there's actually a local talkback station in Bathurst, which is one of the only independent talk stations left in New South Wales or even Australia. It's Mm. called 2BS and it's a family-owned business. They syndicate some of their programs from, I think they get like Ray Hadley maybe or, or one of those type of shows, but they do a live local talk show for the Central West um, at breakfast and I think they have a drive show as well 
and they asked me to sort of test to do the weekend breakfast show on 2BS which is how the, did they the, know about you well I think they just listened to the different voices on the on the student radio station so the student radio <laughs> station goes out to the town yeah yeah right. and gotcha. uh, I think there was a stu- there was someone in the year above me that was doing the weekend breakfast show and I guess she knew me and probably put my name forward I have I have no idea really how they they found me but I went down to sort of do some testing to do this show and it was an incredible program you were on air for six hours from 6 a.m until midday wow and it was all sort of talk there was some segments in there like you had buy swap and sell which was kind of the pre-Gumtree version of, <laughs> of selling things. And you had song requests uh, for an hour. You had a motorsport half hour. You had a fishing half hour. There was all these kind so of different... you had to be across a lot of different topics. Totally. And you had to do n- sort of news interviews and book... You know, there was no producer. So you'd get in in the morning and book some guests. You'd go through all the press releases from the police and the the local MPs and, wow. you know, sporting associations. And you'd book them in and line them up. And so you'd do some kind of newsy interviews. But the other thing as well was that while you were doing that, you had to write and read the news at the top of the hour. So you'd be presenting the program and doing interviews and you'd be editing little clips of audio from the interviews you were doing to slot into the running order and read in the news bulletin at the top of the hour. It was an incredible experience because you just learnt to do things really fast. But actually the other thing that I think was an invaluable skill was it really taught you to listen to what they were saying because you're always listening out for the little grab Mm. that you're going to put into the news at the top of the show and also to write the story around it. So you actually had to be really laser focused on what they were saying uh, because you had so little time. to. And so, you know, you'd throw to an ad break at the end of it, you'd clip up the audio, you'd write the script and then you'd be back on air. There's a real Um, adrenaline, like (laughs) excitement about that kind of it was really good and the, and actually the the weekday breakfast host got sick at one point when I was in my final year at uni so I did a long stretch of doing the normal breakfast show as well so it was it was a great training experience but my god I made some I remember doing an interview with Bud Tingwell and asking him what it was like to play Rumpole of the Bailey <laughs> I was like that wasn't me <laughs> worse because sometimes like I'm a big I I reckon you need to walk into every interview you do prepared but sometimes in the churn and burn of things when things happen really quickly and you don't have time you are not going in as prepared as you necessarily and there is no worse moment than just going I have not only have I gotten that question wrong but by getting that question wrong I've now lost you like you're there's no coming he was so kind he was such a lovely man and I'm sure he was just looking at me I sort of was basically prepubescent I think that works in your favor though when you're really young and you're starting out because People are pretty kind. They know that you're not going to be like Michael Parkinson, you know. It's less funny when you make those mistakes on Radio National. but <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I often think a lot of people sort of when they want to get into this business are like the first question they ask me sometimes is how do I get on the project? And I feel like saying to them, you know what, you would be so much better served actually being on a, on a radio station like that in the middle of somewhere where you can make those kind of mistakes, where you are doing every single thing on the menu of things that need to happen for something to go out. Because then when you end up getting on something like The Project, 
you have enough skills in your bag to be able to deal with things, to comment on different stories, to move with the way a show like that moves. Yeah. Like those kind of early lessons are invaluable. I always, I do a lot of, you know, go to a lot of universities and talk to students and you always get questions about getting into particular places and, you know, I've obviously worked overseas as well. So you get a lot of young students writing to you, wanting help getting into Al Jazeera or mm. Channel 4 in the UK or ABC America. And they're great places to work. But, you know, I always say to students, particularly as they're sort of stepping out into the industry, either go regional or go overseas and work for a newspaper in Phnom Penh. Or, you know, if you really desperately want to be a foreign correspondent, go and do it somewhere that you can start doing that straight away. Go to Jakarta Mm. and work for an English language daily paper and, you know, maybe get some stringer work filing reports for Australian radio stations if and when something happens. But, you know, when you're starting out, the place you don't want to be is the place where there's a huge hierarchy and lots and lots of people doing things well above you and making you go and get the coffee. You, mm. you want to go and go to places where you get to do stuff and yeah. that's generally the really small places where you have to. And also when you live where you live and die by the ratings. I mean, in yeah. regional, you can make some stuff-ups that would get you <laughs> fired in two and a half seconds in a cap city, but there you're just like, well, it's just another Wednesday. <laughs> you know? This is what happens here. Did you ever do any, like, did you do normal jobs? during uni and stuff oh yeah absolutely um i always worked in some we grew up in jindabyne and mum and dad had the pharmacies in jindabyne and in perisher one of the ski resorts and so we we always had the choice when we were little you were either out on the snow skiing or you were in the shop helping because they worked crazy Mm. busy hours for particularly the winter months um so from I know it sounds like a weird choice, but when you're little and you are skiing all the time, when the weather is really crap and it can be awful, yeah, uh, you know, sometimes you just want to be inside. <laughs> but so it's in the shop. So you're in the shop selling throat lozenges and condoms and <laughs> lubricant and all this weird stuff. It was quite an education as a I kid. I bet, actually. You yeah. know, people would come in and buy these things and you'd be like saying to mum and dad, what's that? Yeah, that's true because nobody goes into the pharmacy for like flowers or anything. It's always like, I've got a rash. Yeah. <laughs> Can you give me a cream? <laughs> There was a lot of strange conversations at a pretty early age about what's this ointment? Well, that, you know, desensitizes the male organ so that they, you know, don't do that too soon. <laughs> it was. <laughs> and what, you're how old, did they say? Oh, I don't know. Like, you know, sub teen probably. That's Not cool. that I was selling that, but you just sort of observe these things going on in the shop. And, um, you know, you always knew that it was something interesting when the customer didn't want to bring the product to you at the counter or when your parents sort of swooped in and kind of subtly pushed you aside to do the transaction. But that's, did you feel like um, that made you comfortable around certain conversations that you might not have been comfortable around? I don't know. I've never really thought about it. I just say that because like I was the most uncomfortable kid because my parents never spoke to me about anything. Like I just felt so naive and I hear a story like that and I go, God, I wish I was a fly on the wall in a pharmacy. So when it actually got time (laughs) to the age where I was supposed to know something, I wasn't like the idiot who's sitting there going, uh, 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 uh. I don't know. Like I feel like that's a really... While it's a bit weird and stuff when you're younger, it's actually kind of good to be exposed yeah. to like odd and weird and wonderful conversations about things. So it's not 
weird. I think I more than anything, it wasn't so much the, the the substance of the conversations, but just that ability to meet lots of people and talk to them. Mm. I think that was true of not just being in the shop, but also growing up in the snowfields because you were given a huge amount of freedom at a very early age. So yeah. mum and dad were working the whole winter, pretty much seven days a week. And you, you know, we were sort of skiing competitively a lot. So you were always training, but you, when you weren't training, you were also just out with your friends exploring this huge territory, you know, mm. physically a huge territory that as a kid, if you grew up in the city, you would never have the scope to go off on your own. And they just kind of trusted you to know the mountain and to get on with it, you know. And so a little group of eight-year-olds would go off skiing together for the day with a bit of money in their pocket. And, you know, your parents trusted that you'd be able to find your way back and that if you got lost, you'd know how to get the ski patrol. If there was an injury, you'd know broadly what to do. And so, you know, you're always taking lifts with strangers, you know, to go up the mountain on T-bars or on chairlifts and you just learn to have conversations with people and to ask them questions about themselves. And to and I found that really fascinating because in the ski fields, you meet people from all over the world. Mm. Um, so I definitely have that memory as quite a, a young child of going up lifts with adults and mm. asking them about what do you do and why do you do that and how does that work? And cool way to grow up it was a it was an incredible way to grow up and I think also because in the mountains you're really you are really separated from the rest of the world Jindabyne and the snowy mountains is oddly remote Mm. but you're aware of this because people come there all the time for their holidays you're aware of this much bigger world out and beyond and so I think from a very early age I had this awareness of of what was beyond the mountains around us. Mm. Um, That's obviously set you up for your life later, moving around a lot, living in different places and being comfortable with that and wanting to explore that way. I think you would think from the outside looking in that you might have a smaller town mentality from growing up in a smaller town, but actually the way you described it, it makes complete sense that you would be comfortable with going and roaming and yeah. you know, moving to different places. And I think often people have those perceptions of small country towns in mm. Australia that they are inward looking, but actually from growing up in the bush, you realise how outward looking people are. And I think that's true not just of Jindabyne, but other rural and regional communities. Anyone that works in farming, for example, is always aware of you know first and foremost commodity prices. Mm. And then beyond that, all the things that affect them. So, you know, I've always found, even for Al Jazeera, for example, coming to Australia, the people when Al Jazeera first started that were most likely to know about it were people in the bush because they had satellite television and they were interested in things that influenced commodity prices. And so they knew all about the kind of dynamics of um, shipping and trading and oil prices uh, because that influenced their their business. So, yeah, I often think that people underestimate mm. people in the bush. Yeah, you're right, I think. So so where did that your first gig was at Win in Uh yeah, kind of yeah, I guess it was. I sort of did some intern you had to do an internship when you're at uh, uni. Yeah. My first gig really was 2BS in Bathurst, which right. was the the local radio station. Mm-hmm. That was while I was at uni and then you had to do a um an internship as part of your final semester and I did that at Win in Canberra and Wagga and I got a job at the end of that. 
And so when was that was that a lot of political stuff being in Canberra? There was a lot of a lot of political stuff. There was a lot of ACT legislative assembly. Well, uh, that just sounds like a hoot, doesn't it? <laughs> it was it was actually really fun. I mean, I just had the best time and it was a really incredible newsroom. I was in the newsroom with Sam Armitage. We were there together. I love the stories of like the people we see on our screens now and how everybody was sort of mingling in the same things and par- cross paths at the same jobs and or at the same unis or yeah. whatever. It's really nice. So at that time it was uh, it was Sam Armitage, Jane Azapati was there, oh, yeah. Lizzie Pearl from Nine was there, Pete Stefanovic was there. Oh, I think wow. he took my job when I left, but he was in and out a bit. It was a fantastic little team. Um, yeah, we just had a had a great time and again you had to do every bit of the process you know you would go and file at least three stories a day wow. you know you'd get the you get into the office you'd get the press releases off the fax machine you'd get assigned your camo and and then you'd go off and you'd pull the pieces together and you had to be back by about two o'clock and cutting your three packages it was a pretty full-on uh experience any major stuff-ups I'm sure there were. <laughs> but you blocked them out of your memory. <laughs> I, my main memories are just of constantly saying inappropriate things and getting into trouble for saying the wrong thing and, you know, misbehaving on the weekends and then people from <laughs> bosses from work finding out about that because there was like a wind news camera there. And oh. It, oh, You seem so clean cut though, Hamish. Like you am. seem like you would never, never be naughty. I feel like this delightful blue-eyed exterior hides something that none of us need to see. Um, So did you then move to the UK? How long were you at Win for? I was there for about a year and a half, I think. And I was starting to sort of get job offers to go to Sydney and I was really thinking about that. So people Um, were here seeing what you were doing? Oh, I think I was like sending in showreels and, you know... Everyone sort of was always desperate to go to Sydney mm. and, or go to Melbourne. Uh, so that was starting to unfold. And my big brother was living overseas at the time. He's a journo as well. He was living in the UK. And it was definitely also on my mind that that was a possibility. And I remember talking to a woman called Ali Drower. I don't know if you remember her. She used to be on uh, Today FM. She used to read the news on Today FM uh, in Sydney and she knew my brother actually through that Rory had been the sports guy on the Triple M breakfast show when it was Andrew Denton so there's all these kind of weird connections there but Ali was fantastic and a real kind of you know voice of reason and authority and she said look if you don't go overseas you'll now you'll you might never do it and so yeah that really prompted me just to go and give it a crack and I went back I mean my plan was to go for six months to go do a bit of backpacking try and get a bit of freelance work or pub work or whatever. And that was kind of what I did. The backpacking went on longer than I planned. I spent all my money. I landed in London with 200 Aussie dollars. Mm -hmm. Left, was camping in my cousin's flat at London Bridge. And I started working in a pub for £4.50 an hour. Oh, I was working in one for £5. Yeah. Wow. You were, oh, but, <laughs> you were you obviously know, in a nicer pub. Yeah. The, you know, the most soul-destroying moment every day was when, well, every minute basically when people would come up and order a Cronenberg and it cost more than I was being paid an hour. <laughs> yeah. And I just thought, you bastards, what am I doing here? Well, it's actually how I got into cycling because I I've ended up 
finding a place to live in Shepherd's Bush, Shebu, Shebu, as they say, yeah, just around the corner from the walkabout. Oh, yep. Um, and uh, I had to catch the tube to London Bridge where the pub was, and a day rail pass on the underground was more than what I was getting for my first hour at work and I was like screw this mm. I'm getting a bike I'm not yeah I'm not working the first hour just to catch the tube into work so that was the start with a, of, a, of a long love affair with, with cycling but um, it, it was actually a great experience it was I had no money it was really a wake-up call about the realities of life but there were times during that initial period in London working in the pub where, you know, the main food supply came from the free meal you got working in the pub and there would be weekends where I didn't have enough money to buy food. So, you know, you would just kind of stockpile a couple of tins during the week (laughs) and that would get you through the weekend Mm. um, until you were back in for the next shift and, you know, you'd have your... You kind of your big meal. I mean, they <laughs> there was definitely some conversation scratching at the doors at six a.m. <laughs> well, there was definitely some conversations about the size of the meals I was making myself. <laughs> the lunch oh, break. you were making your own. The kitchen wasn't shipping them out. Oh well, you, you they were kind of relaxed about right that side of things mm. but i was definitely like taking the piss <laughs> going, going pretty heavy with the, the so, double chicken breast rather than one right <laughs> yeah uh, and all the good stuff too yeah. not the crappy stuff so we your brother was in london was he i can't remember whether he was in london or he might have been in cambridge at that time he was working at the bbc um so did he get you work over there how did you end up getting work i think he tried to help me i don't know that it was in the end was particularly useful. I ended up ringing like news desks and trying to get in that way. And it was really soul destroying. It was, I just didn't really have enough experience. I was, I think I was, I must've been 21. I didn't really know what I was doing. I remember calling, uh, I remember getting through, I, I was given a contact at one of the big newsrooms there. And that was sort of my golden contact I'd been told this person was a good contact and the the connection was a solid connection and I remember speaking to this guy and he was asking me about how long I'd been there for I think I lied and said it was six months rather than like six days Mm. and how much experience I'd had and I just remember him like yelling at me and saying we're not a fucking charity call me back in six months when you've been here longer and I was just beside myself I I felt really kind of shattered by that but I just kept ringing news desks and reception desks and trying to see if I could get a shift anywhere. And eventually I did a bit of stuff, a bit of overnight stuff at GMTV, which was like the breakfast show there on ITV. And then I got a few shifts at Channel 4 News mm. doing the weekend producing. And the minute I got in there, I knew that was where I wanted to be. And the minute I saw the program, I, I understood why I was doing it. And I, I, I sort of saw for the first time really what I wanted to do. And do you mean television? I mean that kind of journalism. Right. Channel 4 News in the UK was nothing like I'd ever seen in Australia or, or anywhere for that matter. It was this one-hour nightly news program that broke big stories, that did investigative stuff, that had these incredible – it was hosted by a guy called Jon Snow who's sort of – 
not the guy from Game, Game of Thrones. <laughs> <Good>, you <yeah. laughs> um, He's kind of like George Negus wrapped into Sarah Ferguson, wrapped into Kerry O'Brien slash Lee Sales. He's just this incredibly charismatic uh, voice of authority and reason in a complicated world. And he's he was in his 60s, I think, or late 50s when I was there. And he had the most energy in the room. He wasn't one of these sort of anchors that just turned up and read the news he was finding his own stories he was wanting to go out on the road they were always wanting to take the show to locations all over the world when there was a big story they just got him there you know whether it was Iran or you know Madrid for the Atocha bombing Atocha station bombing or Baghdad he was there and the program was there and it was just this unbelievable view into what journalism on television could be it didn't need to be super glossy and polished and kind of glossing over the detail you could do this in a way that really made a difference and it was just such an incredibly exciting time to be there it was during the Iraq war Britain was polarized about whether it was the right thing to do and whether there were really weapons of mass destruction and so it was this there was kind of a meta story unfolding that just played day to day into things that happened in the newsroom. And I remember, you know, one night going on air, I can't even remember what the story was, but it was about the Blair government and whether they'd been telling the truth. And, uh, you know, at the top of the show, Jon Snow came on and said, you know, we've asked the government to speak and they're refusing to put anyone up. The show's an hour. And by halfway through the program, Alistair Campbell, who was Tony Blair's chief spin doctor, was at reception demanding to be put on set. Wow. And and so they, they put him right in and it was just this explosive interview that sort of just made the news for a, a, a week. Um, it was just this incredibly exciting environment to be in. And I was the smallest cog in this huge machine but it was just, I, I felt so proud to be part of it. And, you know, they ran credits and sometimes your name was in the credit. And I, I felt so proud to have my name there. And I was terrified of the environment, of even opening my mouth because I, I didn't know anything. I felt ashamed of how little I knew because they knew so much about everything. And occasionally stuff would come up about Southeast Asia or Australia. And sometimes they would ask me a question and I just thought to myself, I know nothing about our region. I know nothing about Indonesia or Malaysia or Singapore or Papua New Guinea. I just, I knew nothing. Mm. And actually that was what, you know, I, I very quickly went and enrolled in night school, learning Indonesian. I was like, I have got to get on top of this. They all speak five languages in this newsroom. They all know about French politics and German politics and Tunisian politics and the Caucasus and Dagestan, like countries I, or regions that I'd never heard of. I still haven't heard of them. <laughs> they were able to kind of tell you about the, the sort of longer history of them. And I thought, this, if this is what I want to do, I've got to get out there. And so that was sort of what set me on a path to learning Indonesian. And my plan was to kind of move to Southeast Asia. Jamaat Islamiyah was quite big back then, the kind of Southeast Asian Al-Qaeda affiliate not all that long after the Bali bombings. It was still a very kind of big and active ongoing story. And uh, yeah, I thought I could potentially move to Southeast Asia and carve out a niche as a kind of stringer based in Indonesia doing stuff maybe for British 
television and Australian TV. That was kind of my plan. It didn't transpire that way, but... So how did it transpire? Did you end, you ended up going to Al Jazeera in Kuala Lumpur? Yeah, yeah. so um, I, I was studying Indonesian at night at SOAS in London. The school is the School of Oriental and African Studies and not making a hell of a lot of headway. Um, it's pretty hard to <laughs> learn Bahasa <Yep>. from, <laughs> from scratch, from scratch in, in London. Um, although, it's, I, you know, it's an easier language than a lot of others to, to learn, but... Yeah, my intention was to go to Jakarta at some point and base there. And then one of the bosses at Channel 4 who had been talking to me about how they could help me get there and how I could do things for Channel 4 from there said to me, you know, um, a friend of mine is setting up this new network, an English language version of um, Al Jazeera. And they're looking for people with language skills who are willing to go and live in other parts of the world. And that obviously was immediately interesting to me. And I went for an interview with them and I was like, yeah, I'd love to go and live in Asia. And they were setting up a hub, an Asian hub bureau in, in KL. And uh, they offered me a job as a, as a producer reporter, which was super exciting because it meant, you know, they had producer reporter positions at Channel 4 and it often meant you got to go away with the really senior correspondents and kind of produce their pieces, but then also do some of your own. But then when I got there to KL on the first day, I met the bureau chief and she like within five minutes just said to me, there's been a, there's a mistake in your contract. You're not here as a producer reporter. You're on the list as, as the anchor. And I was like, what, what, that's, what are you talking about? And I was very upset. I remember ringing my parents sort of crying. Why um, were you upset? Because I'd just moved over to the other side of the world and I'd gone from this thing that I loved and I thought Al Jazeera was going to be this amazing thing and I was going to be able to learn how to be a correspondent. And So you wanted to be out of the studio? I just wanted to learn how to do it. Yeah. You know? I'd never done a live cross. I'd never done anything really. You've been entirely behind the scenes pretty much. Well, I'd been, re- win. I'd been reporting. I'd done a couple of things, but yeah, nothing really of any substance. But isn't um, the anchor a promotion? I guess my thinking at the time was this is, this is not what I've been. So if they, if mm. they think I'm the anchor, this is going to be terrible. You didn't feel like you were up. That you well, were, I knew I wasn't up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> up know? to this job, yeah. I... I I clearly didn't, was not, I mean, I was, I was 24, something like that. How would they, what, what's their HR department? Did they have one? Well, you can speak to a lot of people at Al Jazeera <laughs> that can tell you about the HR department. The HR department at Al Jazeera is a part of the Qatari public service. So that gives you some insight right. into how it functions. It's um, anyone that's ever worked at Al Jazeera could tell you stories about right. Al Jazeera HR. But... <laughs> okay. um, so did you end up become? Did you end up becoming the anchor? Well, it it became this sort of very long negotiation. So the the, the launch of Al Jazeera was delayed quite a lot. So when I went there, they were like, "We're going to be launching in two months, so we need to get you there quickly." But it just kept putting, being pushed back. So it actually launched a year to the day after I got there. So over that year, I was sort of sent off to do reports in different parts of Asia that were would hopefully be broadcast when we went on air. They gave me sort of anchor training 
and there was a lot of kind of negotiation around it. And eventually we sort of agreed that I would do some anchoring and I would get to also do some correspondenting mm. and everyone was kind of, I was okay with that. And, you know, the majority of my job was going to be as a traveling correspondent and I would do some of the anchoring. And so that was, that was terrifying, but I was okay with that. And I'd done enough of it during all the sort of pilot period, which was obviously prolonged mm. uh, to feel maybe not quite so terrified by it. And they had some senior anchors in Asia, so I didn't really feel like it was as bad as what I... Right. What was the lifestyle like moving to a new place like that? And I suppose you already, particularly if they're starting up a new project, then you kind of already have an existing community there because everybody's there for the same thing. Yeah, it was, um, I caught up with a bunch of them recently for, for one of my co-anchors birthdays in the UK and people flew in from all over the world because everyone that was there is now sort of fanned out everywhere and uh, we were all talking about what an incredible and formative experience it was for all of us because mm. for many people at Al Jazeera I mean they brought in this kind of top layer of of on-air people like David Sir David Frost and Riz Khan from CNN and Veronica Pedrosa from CNN and so they had all these kind of big global names that they brought in to be the main faces of the of the network but then below that they really kind of brought through an entirely new generation of young correspondents and presenters for whom it was the big break. And uh, it really, for many of us, kind of shaped our, shaped our lives in a, in a very significant way. And it was an incredible time. I mean, there was no budget. I mean, Ooh, there, there, nice. was no, there was no budget. There was no accounting. You would just, the first shoot I went off on, I was just given a pile of 50,000 US dollars in cash and what? sent off to Papua New Guinea and Bougainville. That was my first deployment as a correspondent. And I was never asked to turn in a receipt. I was never asked to account for it in any way. I mean, it was just mind-blowing the way, in retrospect, the way it all ran. But I'd never done it before, so I didn't know there were other ways that you did this so sort what of job. were you like what was coming out of that 50k i was actually the first deployment that they made from asia to do anything to do any news gathering and i went off with a cameraman to bougainville and the Carteret atolls and the highlands of papua new guinea for about a month and the main story we were going to do was about uh, the world's first global warming refugees, climate change refugees from the Carteret Atolls. They were going to be the first people sort of evacuated from their home due to rising sea levels. And, yeah, they just gave us this wad of cash and so we went. So just make what the costs are to make the story and live in the area and embed yourself there and do that, just pay Just make it. it happen. Just make it happen. And we got there and... <laughs> We got there and there was a tropical cyclone brewing off Bougainville. You I had to, you were going to say we got there and we, and we spent it all on blow. <laughs> <laughs> that was a different shoot. Yeah. Um, we, uh, we had to get a boat from Bougainville to the Carterets and there was a tropical cyclone brewing and the cameraman, I don't know, he was the head cameraman in Asia. He was this Aussie bloke whose name I won't use, but okay. who suddenly declared that he got seasickness and couldn't go on a boat. And I was like, well, how are you here? 
like you're always <laughs> going to have to go on a boat. Yeah. And then it sort of became this whole story about how all the kit was new and he didn't want to go in a small boat because, you know, the kit might get wet. I mean, I was really on my first shoot and he was kind of like most, most of my, many of my best mates are cameramen. Mm. I love camos. Mm. This guy was one of those old terrifying. school, terrifying dudes. And it was mm. all this. So the way it works is what happens on tour stays on tour. <laughs> That kind of oh, great. that kind of vibe. <laughs> yeah, that's a, um, that's, a, that's a quick wanker indicator. <laughs> like, all right. <laughs> he was also the he was also the kind of person that carried around in a kind of little zip bum bag on his side a container of antiseptic hand wash, and whenever he shook the hand of anybody of a different skin color, would make a very pointed. Oh. Uh, pull out the disinfectant hand wash, oh. wash the hands, and put it away. Which, if you know anything about me, yeah, you, no, you, not you your style. Know that, no, no. So that's the I'm kind of dick. dude I was there with. So basically, I basically couldn't go and do this story. And I remember ringing the the news editor, who was a lovely Aussie bloke called Ross Dagan, and saying, "I don't, I don't think we're going to be able to get this story uh, because." Old mate, antiseptic hand wash won't get on a boat. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a tropical cyclone and, you know, all these other things. (laughs) And then I got a phone call on the sat phone from the bureau chief, this wonderful but slightly terrifying Kiwi woman called Trish Carter, who I absolutely adore, but rang me up and said, you need to get this story. And if you don't get this story, I'm never sending you away again. (laughs) Right. <laughs> Okie dokie then. I guess I gotta get it. <laughs> and I went to the bar in Booker in Bougainville to sort of basically drown my sorrows because I was like, this is the this is my career as a foreign correspondent is ending before it's even begun. Yeah. And I ended up sat next to this very old Ocker Queensland bloke, and it turned out that he was a copra trader. And that the cargo ship in the port in Booker was his because he was there to transport a a cargo ship full of copra, which is the um, like the husk of the coconut trees, which I don't know what they use it for, but it's one of the things that's traded out of Bougainville. Mm. And uh, he was like, oh, I could take you there. Welcome to what, how those young conversations on chairlifts end up paying off later in life. And you just sit down next to somebody, have a yarn. Next thing you know, you're solving your problems. Yeah, so it was a fair stack of the 50 grand went to that. Oh, right. um, <laughs> but it, it, was, it was honestly such a, an incredible trip. We, we also ended up... So we had a fixer. When you when you go away mm. to foreign countries as a correspondent, you always have a fixer, which is like your local producer, and they're your sort of translator. Come, you know, arranger of drivers and you know, sorter of things. Mm. And sometimes they're amazing, and sometimes they're terrible. And at Al Jazeera, um, we all came up with this game that we used to play called Fixer Breaker. Yeah. <laughs> and you had 24 hours at the start of your shoot to run a series of tests in which you determined whether your fixer was a fixer or a breaker. Oh, right. <laughs> so what were some of the tests? Or you would just see whether they would actually do things. Because in some Southeast Asian countries, the fixers were somehow like government officials. Um. So there are some countries that are kind of democracies but kind of not. And in order to be a, an officially registered journalist, you have to have a government-authorised 
press card. And so sometimes they're there more to monitor you than to actually facilitate what you want to do. Mm. So sometimes it's about how you get around the fixer rather than how you kind of work with them to get what you need. Mm. But we had this fixer in Bougainville. We were also doing a story about the Mechamoy rebels, Mm. which is the, the sort of insurgent group, I guess, uh, for want of a better term. And, this fixer that we had kept disappearing. She'd sort of set the interviews up. We should be there at the start of the interview. And then by the end of the interview, she'd just be nowhere to be seen. And it kept happening over and over again. And we couldn't really figure out why that was. And we never really got to the bottom of, the myst- uh, of this mystery. But then a week later, we were up in the highlands of sort of mainland PNG. We were doing a story about tribal violence up near Mount Hagen which is pretty sort of full-on tribal territory. There'd been a tribal fight in one of the remote villages at one of the local primary schools because there was like a corruption allegation against the principal of the school. The kids, when the cops turned up, had come out throwing stones. The cops were from a different tribe and in response to the kids throwing stones had just opened fire and killed like a dozen children and the school was closed down and there was just like bullet holes everywhere. It was a really incredible story. Oh my goodness. And uh, so we'd had this kind of really full on day filming there, which involved cameraman hand wipe doing some pretty dodgy things that led our security team to say, if this turns bad, we're leaving him. Uh, But that's another story. Anyway, uh, when we got back to the hotel, the receptionist came up to us and said, you've got to leave. You're not safe here. I was like, what? She said, you're just not safe here. They've found out about you. And I was like, what, what do you mean? She said, you're on the front page of the newspaper. I put a copy under your door. Anyway, it turned out that the fixer that we'd used in Bougainville was the sort of stringer for the PNG Post Courier, which is the Murdoch-owned national newspaper in Papua New Guinea. What's a stringer? Like a freelance journalist, but on a retainer. Okay. So you don't have them employed full time, but you pay them a little bit of money to sort of be your person there. A lot of newspapers have stringers, you know, in remote places all over the world. Mm -hmm. And the reason she was disappearing when we were doing interviews was to duck off and take photographs with a long lens at a distance of us working and talking to the Mechamoy rebels. And the story on the front page of the newspaper was about how representatives of Al Jazeera and Al-Qaeda's spokesperson... (laughs) This is back in the day. This is 2006, five, back when the US government was sort of saying that uh, Al Jazeera was the spokesperson for terrorist kingpin Osama bin Laden. So the front page story was about the spokespeople of terrorist kingpin Osama bin Laden being in Bougainville negotiating or doing something with the Mechamoy rebels and that there was a possibility there was going to be a terrorist training camp set up there. And on the front page is a picture of me and the cameraman. <laughs> Blonde-haired, blue-eyed Hamish McDonald. I've still got, I've still got the paper. <laughs> I would have kept it too. Yeah, we got an apology a few weeks later. But, yeah, that was, that was my first trip as a foreign correspondent. Oh, my God. So those stories, you know, where you're turning up and there's, uh, 
you know, children are being killed or you're in the Middle East or where, you know, do, do you struggle with those kind of stories that are a little tougher? Because I guess in the moment you're working, you're moving through things. I was mm. talking to Michael Usher on the show about, you know, his sort of relationship with, with war zones and that kind of coverage and the fact that he kind of had to, you know, literally mentally yank himself out of it and say, I think I need a sort of break from this kind of stuff because it does in a way get addictive because you're so in the centre of important things that you're covering. Did you, do you struggle with that kind of stuff or? Uh, there's a lot of parts to that question, but. Um, Sorry, I asked no. about 18-1, <laughs> that's bad interviewing. No, no, no. <laughs> well, I guess in my mind, the way I think about those things is reasonably compartmentalised, but I, I think you would be inhuman if you didn't have some kind of emotional connection to those stories and emotional reaction to them what i would say is that for the most part when you're in those places if that stuff is going on there's a lot of other complications to just being there that you have to focus on first and foremost mm. so always you know people always ask you questions about being in war zones and whether you're worried you're going to get bombed or shot or whatever and of course on some level you are but that's never really what you're thinking about there in the moment because if you're the correspondent or the producer you're generally leading a team there's a few of you you might have a security guard you might have a local security person or you might have a fixer you probably have a driver uh, you might have a translator you know there'll always be some configuration of your team and, and you're responsible for everyone mm. and you've got to make sure that all the basics are met you can't make small mistakes. You've got to ensure that the vehicle's fine. You've got to make sure you've got enough petrol. You've got to make sure you know where the next bit of petrol is going to come from. You've got to make sure that you know where the front line is and how you're going to get there and how you're going to get back. You need to know where you're going to be staying that night. You need to know where you're going to be filing from. You need to be thinking about how long it's going to take you from where your base that's hopefully safe to where you need to be to get the story and then get back to file. So there's all of these logistical parameters around what you're doing that are front and center in your mind that you are laser focused on before you kind of deal with the rest of it mm. and I think in a way that probably protects you or safeguards you from a lot of the other stuff you just basically don't have time to worry about a bomb randomly mm. dropping on your head because you're taking all these other precautions to make sure that you don't ever get into that situation I think, of course, you are affected and shaped by human suffering. Um, I think for many people, that's a motivating thing because it, it does make you feel that it's worth telling these stories. But I also agree that you have to know yourself and know what your limits are. You know, I've only once in my career asked to come home from a story and it was when it, it really just... I reached a point where mm. I felt I can't, I don't want to be here any longer. Mm. And when you don't want to be somewhere, uh, that's when you make mistakes. That's when you're not thinking about or concentrating on all those logistical mm. questions because your mind's somewhere else. It's saying, I don't want to be in this space. I don't know whether there's a right thing to do in those circumstances, but yeah, there was one instance in which I, I just said, I, it's time for me to get out of here and that that was a difficult really difficult decision and a really difficult time professionally and personally but I I think it was the right thing to do and it didn't make any difference to the world that mm. I wasn't there you know the story still got told I think that was an important lesson for me 
you know, never be so narcissistic as to think that you're the only person that can tell this story mm. or that will do it justice. There's lots of great journalists in the world. And if for whatever reason it's not the right moment for you to be there, you've got to make that call. Does it make it hard to come home? though because say for example talking to lee sales she was right in the center of things in washington she says you come home and it's like it does take you a while to recalibrate because australian politics seems like you're covering dubbo council after you've been in the white house like you know being in the middle of big things and big stories does it make it hard to go i'm going to give this up and and move home i know that's something people say and feel i've never had that sensibility I guess it's been shaped by a couple of things. I went and worked for an American network a few years ago and I I learned, I suppose, the hard way that for me, a strong component of it is about the audience you're talking to. And I learned when I was working for an American broadcaster that I didn't particularly have a connection with an American audience. I didn't feel that sense of obligation or responsibility or joy in re- reporting for that audience that I do at home in Australia. Mm. You know, when you start in radio, they often tell you to imagine a person that you're talking to. And, you know, when I started doing a lot of ABC radio, I always thought of my auntie Heather, who I love very dearly, who's sadly no longer with us. But um, all of my childhood memories of her are of ABC radio being on in the background. Mm. And so I always just imagined I was talking to her when I, when I do. And I still imagine I'm talking to her when I do radio Um, and one of the great things I think about talking about being on the project is that the project really knows who its audience is and Mm. who it's trying to talk to and how and that's a great tool as a broadcaster to have some idea of that and when I got to working for an American network I just didn't didn't have that compass and I didn't have that connection and it really took something away from the whole experience for me. I know it was a great opportunity to go and work in America and I feel very lucky to have had that opportunity, but it it definitely removed for me a big part of why I do what I do. How long were you with ABC? Uh, a couple of years. Yeah, right. Um, were you, was it all sort of correspondent stuff? So you weren't actually in the... Does that... If you're a correspondent but you're just, say, a correspondent for a new network, does it feel any different? Because essentially you're still doing the same job. Um, it was really different. Oh, in what way? Uh, um, the way they, the way American networks do things is so different to how I had ever done it before. Right. Just the process, the amount of people involved, the amount of production, the amount of sort of editorial supervision was sort of so far removed from anything I'd ever come across. Mm. You know, when you're away, you're generally in a different time zone. You have to get the story done. So you yeah. just sort of make the best choices you can and Mm. you deliver the story working for an American network it was very much about okay you're in Baghdad or you're in Abuja or you're in Ukraine you know let's wait until they wake up in New York and have the editorial meeting and then they'll tell us what the story is and then we'll figure out a way to do that if we can get some components before then that we think they might want then we can offer that up but it's very much about what they see the story to be that day and that was a really really hard thing to come Mm. to terms with and I I mean it it was definitely the most difficult period in my working life um, because it was this huge opportunity but it was really it was not the right fit for me and I I really struggled with that I felt very guilty that 
uh, I had this opportunity and yet I wasn't enjoying it. Mm. Um, I didn't like the job. It made me very unhappy and I didn't want to be there. And I didn't feel that I could see through the four-year contract that I had with them. And, and that was a really, it was just a really difficult moment in my, in my professional life to sort of, I guess, admit failure to yourself. Mm. Um, Very hard when there are certain things in our mind in this business that are built up to be the things we must want and the things that will show that we've made it or that and then when you actually get there it's almost impossible to reconcile in your own mind hang on a second this isn't bringing me joy this isn't what I want to be doing I'm not feeling good about this and I think we put so much emphasis on things whether it's working in America that seems to be a big thing in this business and you see I don't know how many people I've spoken to who have for example gone over to LA and it's been the most miserable soul-destroying horrific experience of their life but from the outside looking in it's like oh but you're over in LA you're you know oh you're working for an American network you're and it just doesn't always play out that way and it can be very personally conflicting because you think I should be loving this I should be want a million people would want this opportunity and I'm not feeling like Mm. I want to be here and it's like it's almost impossible because you feel it's a hard business to say no to things or to be the person who chooses to leave something in this game and that really encapsulated a lot of the conversations I had with people here about Mm. my experience you know I would say to friends in the media like it's really not the right thing for me and they would say to me, but you've got the best job in the world. You're the international, you're the international affairs correspondent for one of the two top networks in America. And you're on Good Morning America and you're on World News Tonight with Diane Sawyer. And, you know, you're getting all the big stories. And I, I just, it was a very dark period. Mm. And, um, you know, my, it really led me to the conclusion that I, I was going to leave journalism altogether and leave broadcasting and... It was so difficult to come to terms with what I, f- I felt should have been the kind of um, zenith, I guess, uh, of, of a career being so unsatisfying. Mm. But it, it, it really, you know, they changed my name on air. Like, to what? It was when I first started there and I was on air doing a cross from Moscow and uh, I handed back to Diane Sawyer and, and she said, well, thanks so much, Mac. Good to have you there. And I woke up the next morning to this email sort of saying like, you know, I hope that was okay. Oh, we think Mac is more. It just kind of works better. Like Americans always have tr- troubles with my name because it's not really a common name there. So well, I, was, Hamish. I always get asked if I'm <laughs> an Amish person. Really? You're one of those people? Um, Are you kidding me? And in New York, I get a lot of people asking me if it's a Yiddish name. Hamish, is that Yiddish? Um, <laughs> is, is, I mean, I didn't realise that Hamish was that odd. Like, I just thought that was a stock standard name, no? I don't think so in America. And not that it didn't bother me that much, but I guess to, over time it's sort of come, become a symbol in my head of the whole thing just not really being the right fit. Mm. I, didn't, I, I didn't really fit into what they wanted Mm. and um and just yeah reaching a point where you have to think through whether something is not right for you was was a really difficult thing um but 
I feel that through that, I, I have a much clearer and stronger sense of self and why I do what I do and what I want to do. And certainly never would have had the notion of applying to Harvard and I probably never would have gotten in if I didn't have that job. Mm. Um, so I definitely don't regret it. And I, I learnt a heck of a lot through that experience. I mean, the Americans are amazing at what they do. Mm. ABC America, I have... I do have so much respect for them. You know, GMA, Good Morning America is this incredible brand that they've built up and taken it to number one in the breakfast market. And it is, you know, the most fiercely contested TV market in the world. And they are bloody good at what they do. They know exactly who they're talking to, how they want to talk to them. They know mm. what works, they know what doesn't. And so from a sort of business point of view, I, I learned so much about, how to do things well but you're not going to fit every job you know it's not no. that it's not a it's not that it's a good or a bad job it's just a matter of fit it's like this either fits my personality and i work a way that I, that i think i'm really working to my best in this environment or you don't yeah. you know i knew when i was in prague sitting in a bathtub full of beer doing a piece to camera <laughs> about bathing in beer that this really was not the right <laughs> job for me. Yeah, yeah, no, you're not changing lives by that, are you? So just just quickly, and just before we move on, I want to say a huge thank you to the sounds of the neighbourhood during that very poignant time where I felt like we were talking about some really deep stuff and we had what I think was a street sweeper going past, somebody on the leaf blower, a flight overhead, and then I think a drill we're in the background. We're keeping it real, keeping so we're it real. Keeping, <laughs> we're keeping it real. Um, Harvard. What did you do there? You were, Was it a scholarship that you got? Uh, so it's called a fellowship. Fellowship, yeah. Uh, which is a kind of weird thing that actually took me a long time to get my head around. But Harvard has this incredible thing called the Neiman Foundation for Journalism. And it's essentially an endowment, an endowment that was left by a woman called Agnes Neiman 80 mm -hmm. years ago this year. And that money has been used to pay for journalists from around the world to come to Harvard every year for a year and they pay you money to come and live there and you can study anything you want at Harvard or MIT which is just down the road and it's an incredible gift uh, that I couldn't really even understand even when I was there why they would want to just sort of pick you out of the journalism pool around the world and, and give you this opportunity to come there and think. What and did grow. you have to submit to get in? You had to write a number of essays, uh, a sort of personal essay about who you are and why you do what you do. And then you had to write a study proposal talking about what it was you wanted to learn and get out of the experience and how you would use the resources of Harvard to achieve that why coming to Harvard would be the way in which you could do that and why you couldn't do it anywhere else and why you couldn't do that in your own job and so I yeah I, I went off to Harvard for a year and I studied at the Kennedy School of Government which is you know where there's you know future world leaders uh, and and also people that have been world leaders coming and teaching so you could just, pick whatever you wanted, yeah. not in the journalism field, just anything. Yeah, I mean, you're not there to learn how to be a journalist or to necessarily get better at the journalism bit. 
you're there to expand your mind. And actually one of the first things they tell you when you get there is you're obviously here because your study proposal was great and we like that and we encourage you to pursue that. But if now that you're here, you find other things that you're interested in that you would rather spend your time doing, go for it. This is a this is our gift to you. I want to puke. I'm so jealous. <laughs> it, it was... And, and certainly some of the things that I did there, I would never ever have thought of doing before I went there. Oh. Like I stumbled into a, they have a period at the start of your first semester called course shopping. And it's two weeks where you can basically sample all the different courses. And, you know, maybe sometimes the things you thought you wanted to do, you turn up and it's maybe not what you expected or the professor isn't quite so keen on having fellows. I stumbled into a course called Restless Empire and it was basically Chinese dynastic history and its uh, relationship with contemporary Chinese foreign policy. And it was the most mind-blowing experience, uh, I think, of my life. It was, you know, you were there for four, four and a bit months. The class was largely made up of fellows, different kinds of fellows. So there was a lot of Chinese fellows there, you know, doing economics fellowships or American national security fellows who'd come from, uh, you know, serving in the American Navy or from the Joint Chiefs of Staff. There was sort of NSA, NSA type people there. There were diplomats there, all with this incredibly rich contribution to make and the teaching style at Harvard is very Socratic so you know the the pedagogy is not a lecturer standing at the front blathering at you for an hour and a half Mm. it's a lecturer that maybe poses some questions and then everyone having done the 200 pages of reading that week and bringing whatever knowledge and insight they have to it stimulating a, a conversation together and it was I just found it to be such an incredible and rich experience i mean that was just one course of you know the many that i did but they were all uh amazing i want to cry <laughs> you should do it i just like what an incredibly i don't even know if indulgence is the right word but the idea of just being in that joint for a year to just learn whatever you want to learn like yeah. what a joyous, indulgent experience. It, it was totally indulgent. And, and that's the, th- I mean, it took me probably the first semester to understand that, like, they kept referring it to as a gift, to it oh, as a gift. Yeah. And in my head, I'm sort of thinking the whole time, but what have I got to do? What mm. have I got to deliver? And, you know, you do have some deliverables. You've got to make a big speech sort of at some point during your year there. But no essays or exams or anything? Well, most of the professors, if you want to take their course, they say, well, you, even though you're a fellow, you have to do all of the coursework. Right. Because a lot of it's group work and they say it's not really fair on the graduate mm. students if you're in their group and you're not really you're not doing, doing it. anything. It's all right, um, guys, I'm a fellow. I'll just be yeah, chilling over yeah, here with be... my pina colada. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure you put my name on that assignment. But totally. <laughs> but you know the thing, like I've always been really cynical about that whole sort of idea of networking. And you really notice it in America, like it's such a thing. I think Aussies generally are pretty sceptical about yeah. the idea of networking. It feels so um, shallow yeah. and so transactional. Mm. And, you know, my first semester there, I was doing this class called Great Powers Competing in the International System. It was basically a geopolitics course and it's taught by a guy called um, Nicholas Burns who was uh, the Under Secretary of State to Condi Rice and Colin Powell and he was the US ambassador to NATO on 9-11 oh, for God's sakes he's like this really <laughs> he's this really right, brilliant yeah. brilliant guy and 
I was getting a lot of you at Harvard when you sit in class, you have to sit with a name card in front of you. Oh, it's like the UN. Yeah. So you get this at the start, you get this laminated name card and you have to take it with you everywhere and put it in front of you in class. And I started getting a lot of emails from students in the class saying, hey, do you want to go for coffee? And I was like, I'm just not really into this whole, mm. it seems really weird. Like, mm. But then over time, I started realizing how interesting everyone in the class was and I started going for these coffees and one of them would be like yeah well I'm about to go home to Sudan and run for the presidency and I'm about to go home to East Timor and yeah I'm planning a run at the presidency in a couple of years time and it was just mind-blowing to me that these people were in your class and they they're really there because they're planning to go and sort of run a country or a company or and you have this level that you're on with them in that environment that's so different to your experience as a journalist with people because as a journalist you always need something from them and if they're willing to talk to you it's because they need something from you Mm. so it's quite transactional and they're generally very clear about what they need from it and you're generally clear about what you need from it Mm. and you're both kind of in this weird nuanced dance trying to get to the point where you both get there Mm. but in that environment you don't really need anything other than to be interested in each other's story. And that was that was the real gold for me. That was the magic discovery of the year was just being able to do that and be free of the shackles of I need to get a story out or figure out what mm. this is about and just listen to them. And, you know, like we had one of the fellows that was there at the time was Wendy Sherman, who was the lead US negotiator on the Iran nuclear deal. And she did these sort of lunches where you could just go and have lunch with Wendy Sherman and talk to her off the record about the backroom story of the Iran nuclear deal. She was sort of just as interested in where you'd been and what it was like in Afghanistan and what it was like on the ground in Libya during the revolution. And it was a really just, yeah, I feel unbelievably... Oh, absolutely. I would absolutely. have been pooping my pants. Like at least you've got the Libya gear to come out with. I'd be like, oh, that one time uh, at a restaurant, like what? <laughs> but, but the, you know, they're people too, right? Yes. Well, this is the thing that you realise with everybody yeah. and, you know, especially in media and things, there's always a sense of who's who and you're just like, every, we're all just yeah. randos wandering around on a big old rock trying to work out what the hell to do with ourselves. And generally they want, they want other people to go for a drink with on Friday night. True. You know? mm. And uh, yeah, it was just a really, not that I went for drinks on Friday night with Wendy Sherman, but uh, <laughs> just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> um, Me and Shermo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I sort of, as I said to you, I went into Harvard really thinking that I was going to leave journalism and, and broadcasting. And it took me really the full year to figure out that all the other things, options that I was thinking of were actually not what I wanted to do and mm-hmm. that I did still have something to do in journalism. But I came out of it thinking I would have another crack and I would see if it was possible to just build a career that was just doing things I really want to do and taking opportunities as and when they come, that really excited me. And so that's sort of what I've been trying to do for the last probably going on 18 months. And it's been really the happiest time uh, for me professionally in my life. 
It's a fairly amazing point when you can get to a stage where you've got experience, knowledge, some sense of confidence in your own ability and you can start to make some choices. Yeah, I'm still shitting myself most of the time. Oh, yeah, but... I mean, who, who is not? It's like a constant, it's a constant poo-your-pants industry. <laughs> it's like... It certainly is. Yeah, it's always going to be that way, but that's why it's exciting. Do you, do you feel like you've uh, had much control over your career to this point or do you feel like you've been to going where the wind's taken you and now you're kind of more in control? Uh, I'm definitely more about where the wind takes me. I've never had sort of set goal i've never you know people always ask you what's your five-year plan and mm. your tenure? i've never ever had a so hard to have in this business though because you just can't tell where you're going to be in five years i also just i've always found that kind of thinking quite limiting yes and disappointing yeah if you set yourself a goal and you don't achieve it like why is it, why put a you know why yeah. put that expectation out there if if you end up going somewhere else and you think oh i didn't get there it's like well life changes i also just think though that the things that i've done that have been the most exciting and stimulating and and fruitful have been things I would never have thought of Mm. doing. You know, explaining to people that I'm doing this kind of news comedy program called The Project that's on at 6.30 at night. And, you know, we sort of interview celebrities and politicians and anything in between. It's not something you... I would ever have imagined when I started out in journalism Mm. because it didn't exist. Mm. You know, the genius of it and the people behind it is that they've created something really different and new and it's a joy to participate in Mm. that Mm. but if I had have been dead set on one thing that was you know very hardcore foreign correspondent journalism and that was all I was ever going to do or be you would have been shut off to to those sorts of opportunities that that kind of came up I guess. What do you reckon is the best and the worst thing about the industry? The best thing is that you have this kind of badge, a metaphorical You don't walk around in a badge, do you? (laughs) (laughs) Juno. Let me just get it out of my pocket. Mac the (laughs) Juno. Yeah. Um, That gives you kind of a license to go into people's worlds in a way that you would never be able to do if you just walked in off the street. And that's an immense privilege but it's also a big responsibility because you have to be really judicious with that function Mm. Um, and that's you know in every capacity that I've had whether it's been as a young journo or as a foreign correspondent or as hosting radio programs or tv programs you you have this license to ask questions and to probe that you wouldn't ordinarily have and I love that Mm. and what's the worst thing I find that really hard to answer. Great. Um, What's the worst thing? What a great thing to be able to say about your career. There's plenty of people you'd ask, what's the worst thing about your job? And they could give you 700,000. Honestly, the things that I do, I'm doing them because I really love them. Mm. And um, I haven't always been able to say that about my career. So it means a lot actually to to be at a point in, in my life where... Yeah, I just really get a lot of joy out of the things that I do mm. and uh, and I look forward to doing those things. I think it's really shitty but so important to have those times where you are bottom of the barrel broken mm. because those moments mean that when things turn around, mm. you are so appreciative in mm. a way that you just never were before and I think 
that is so important to have a meaningful life, you know, to feel like you can feel the joy in what you do. And sometimes I really do feel like that's almost impossible if you've Mm. never felt the opposite. I've I've certainly, you know, I've been to that point where I, in my mind, had walked away, Mm -hmm. uh, where I'd been in a live war zone and rung up my bosses and said, I need to come home. Mm. I've had enough. And thinking at the back of my mind, I'm not just talking about this story and this environment. I'm talking about the whole thing. Mm. And I I really can't imagine a way in which I ever want to get on another plane and go off on another shoot and, and be in these difficult places. And having my whole life thought I was going to be a journalist to to sort of reach that point in your 30s when you've got the sort of in quotation marks best job in in the world as far as you know people around you saw it was a very confronting experience Mm. but to then not all that long later have come come through that and and feel so happy about going into work and you know still feel privileged and lucky and nervous and excited about things is uh, yeah it, it means a lot more now than than i think it did before oh, absolutely um right we're down to the final five questions okay we've made it are you okay yeah i'm all right <laughs> <You sure>? yeah <laughs> i feel like we've been through a real roller coaster of emotions <laughs> together um okay final five questions your biggest regret Oh man, that's so hard. Biggest regret? I don't really regret things. Soz. <laughs> Soz. <laughs> you don't have to be sorry about that. I'm exactly the same. I've had some of the world's shittest years and there's not a single regret no, in my life. It all, it's all, you use it all for something. That's it. Yeah. And you, you get know? to a point where particularly, I always say this, but particularly if you're in a space where you feel happy now yeah it feels very difficult to come up with a regret i've missed a lot of friends weddings okay that's and i'm really i regret i'm sorry that i really feel bad you've been away a long time yeah it's always like it's always a really good reason like Mm. when you ring them and you're like i'm really sorry but like Gaddafi's about to fall um i can't come uh, I could really do with that because sometimes (laughs) i just don't want to go to weddings and i don't have an excuse that good i'm just like meh I can't be bothered. <laughs> I need something that's really good. You've always got a killer excuse. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's okay. that's my regret. Uh, your dream gig. Oh, man, these are really hard questions. I don't really have... Well, bloody hell, I'm not Actually, supposed to get you know Do you know, do you know what? I do have a dream gig. I was talking about this the other week because I, I was hosting the National Architecture Awards and I was saying to them at the beginning that I have this confession... Because in journalism, you are always being up whenever you go for an interview somewhere or whenever you're talking to a boss about, you know, they're always like, what's your five-year plan? What do you ultimately want to do? Mm. I've really never had the answer to that. And it's meant to be something like I want to win the Gold Walkley or I want to host this program or I want to host an election coverage or go to, to a war zone or something like that. My secret ambition has always been to be Kevin McLeod from Grand, Grand Designs. Designs. I love him. He's so good. But it's not really like I want the job as me. I just want to be Kevin McLeod. Right. So that's going to be tougher to achieve. <laughs> yeah, I think I could. we could probably get you on some kind of uh, design show, but actually becoming, yeah. <laughs> getting inside Kevin McLeod's skin is a touch creepier. <laughs> 
But he, there's something about him, isn't there? It's like he just does these little poems. Yes. You know. He's very good with the words, yeah. you know, and it's tough to beat. I was like, I, I thought when we did the Australian version of Grand Designs, I thought, geez, he's tough. And even when you don't, like I like watching design shows and that kind of yeah. stuff, but I'm not all that into it. But he just makes it sound so yeah. interesting. He does, it's, always, it's always like, Paul and Julia were a couple with a dream. <laughs> a dream of a house, but not a home. What they've got is both a house and a home. <laughs> And a dream of a future beyond. You know, like it's this sort of... <laughs> and you're right on board. All right, well, let's see if we can work out some kind of voodoo magic that will get you inside uh, Kevin McLeod's skin in a non-creepy yeah. way. Do you have a big idea that you've yet to get up? Are there, uh, is there a sort of film or TV thing in you? Is there a book in you? Uh, yeah, there's a book that I've actually just paid back the advance to the publishing house because I basically can't get it written, but it's really... <laughs> That's a, I've always wondered about that. The whole ad- I feel so bad. It's a really, it's an incredible story that I have been wanting to write for years and I really feel needs to be written. Does it require research and you don't have time? Basically, so I've done quite a bit of it. I've done a number of research trips mm. and it, the main characters are not in this country although it's a kind of essentially an Australian story. And, yeah, the publishers have been unbelievably patient with me and I ended up having to write to them and just say, I I don't think I can deliver this. You've extended the deadline so many times already. I don't think I can deliver this to the standard that both you and I want. It's not that I want to give up on this entirely, but I think I should talk about terminating the contract and... Um, Good on you for not spending the advance. Yeah, I hadn't touched the advance. I mean, there are people that would not have the willpower to do that. It's like, (laughs) I'd love to pay you the advance back, but it's not there anymore. (laughs) Yeah, they they have been so lovely and patient about the whole thing. And I really, I've never really sort of, you know, so clearly backed out of something in Mm. in that way. But I guess one of my learnings in recent years has just been to know when it's not right and to say it up front and not go too far down that path Mm. to the point where it all gets too difficult. Just call it and, um, you know, maybe there will be the right time or maybe there'll be a different way of telling that story. It's a great story that everyone in Australia will know something about the start point of this particular um, story. Mm. No one knows what happened next and it's a really, it's a remarkable tale. You've hooked me. I'm ready. Uh, if you weren't doing this as in working in media, what would you be doing? Maybe teaching. Oh, you'd be good at that. Yeah. Yeah, you'd be really good at that. I really enjoy teaching, run some workshops and mm. that kind of thing. Yeah, really, really enjoy that. I've been a ski instructor. I didn't love that so much, but teaching, I think, probably would be my thing. It's a real lifestyle choice with the ski instructor thing, isn't it? Yeah. You know, I taught kids and you were not supposed to teach them how to do jumps. Oh, like come little, on, that's like, a fun bit. Yeah, I know. And that's the point. You have like kids for a week and all they bloody well want to do <laughs> is do jumps. And you've got them in your ear, come in here, jumps, come in here, the whole week. And so, you know, there was a couple of spots on the mountain where you knew you could kind of take the kids that were not within sight of the happy hut where the, where the boss ski instructors were, that you could kind of build a little jump and teach them how to do it. Right. So generally on like a Thursday or a Friday, the, the, some of the 
you know, rebel instructors mm. would well, you go all, to the hardcore. all go off to... <laughs> to Away the, from the happy hut. Yeah, <laughs> we'd go beyond sight of the happy hut, build a little jump and teach the kids to go off. And of course they want you to lie. They're like, go higher, go higher. And you sort of show off a little bit. And I, I went and broke my shoulder and had to ski back to the happy hut with 12 kids in tow holding onto my shoulder saying to them you know you know that we're not meant to do jumps you can't talk about where we were and of course you get back to the happy hut uh, exactly got straight back to the happy <laughs> you should have said he did the biggest jump <laughs> yeah you can't be living a lie Hamish. i don't think <laughs> i don't think ski instructing was not 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 for you uh and finally your advice to people wanting to get into the business do it it's great if you really have a passion for it but have a reason to do it other than wanting to be on tv or radio because i think you see so much of that and those are the people that never really last um you have to have this has to be something in you that wants to do it beyond that because that novelty fades very quickly and you have to love some component of storytelling or journalism or uh, having a conversation that carries you beyond that. Mm, Absolutely. And on that note, I think you did quite well. You had some pretty good stories in there. I don't know why (laughs) you were doubting yourself. If you got to this point in in the conversation, (laughs) I I give you full credit. High fives to you. Thank you so much, Amy. Thanks, Rach. Thanks for listening to You've Got to Start Somewhere. Thanks. To subscribe to the podcast, check out other episodes, and keep up to date, head to you'vegotostartsomewhere.com. Thanks so much for joining me for my chat with Hamish McDonald. And a big thank you too if you have left a review for the show in iTunes. If you are digging the interviews, please share the love, let people know. And a little shout out to France the Chef, Walking Nick and Olympic Comedy for your reviews. I really appreciate it. Next week on the show, I am chatting with comedian Michelle Laurie. I have been tracking this lady down like nobody's business. We have been trying for yonks to get together. And finally, we got into a studio to chat and I'm super chuffed she came on the show. She talks about moving from Toowoomba and being a country girl in the big smoke in Melbourne, knowing absolutely no one in the comedy scene, but somehow working her way onto the circuit. I just sat down with the street mags, found the gigs, uh, landlines in those days, sat on the phone, ringing up, getting answering machines. Hello, I'm a comedian from Brisbane. Can I come and have a gig, please? And then I would go to St Kilda Library. I was so poor. And I would photocopy, or if I was really poor, tear out a page from the Melways at the library because I couldn't afford oh. to buy one. And, and I would use those, piece them together to get to gigs on public transport. I hope you'll join me for that chat next week on You've Got to Start Somewhere.